The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, um, Guard your hearts, guard yourselves, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to turn away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that you will not give in to sin's deceitfulness. For, here's the reason why we need to guard our hearts and encourage one another. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning. People who say, I share with Christ, and then turn from Him, Hebrews would say, you didn't share with Christ. You share with Christ if you hold firmly to the end the confidence you had at the beginning, and you can't do it on your own. One of the gifts of, from God in helping us not have a hard heart, but to nurture a believing heart, is that we encourage one another. So here he says, gather together all of you who are willing to heed my voice. Zephaniah chapter 2, gather together all of you who are willing to heed my voice because you're going to need one another to make it through what's about to come. Before the degree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, that is how quickly the day of the Lord will come and be over. The patience of God will turn to wrath that quick. This summer we got to go to South Dakota, my family. And it was perhaps the first time I'd ever seen, you know, like cowboy chaff blowing across the road. You know, I'd seen it in the John Wayne movies that my 10-year-old and I watch. But now it was right there. It's just blowing. And it, it blew quick. Winds on the prairie come fast. Here and gone. That's how quick we're talking. Windblown chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. There's the fire imagery again. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. I mean, do you get it? The repetition there is amazing. So the decree is going to take effect. It's going to pass like chaff. The burning anger of the Lord is coming. The day of the anger of the Lord is coming. Have you heard me yet? I mean, he's just... He's hammering it down. Will you gather together? To what end? Chapter 2, verse 3. And here is the, is, there's two main central calls in this book. And I am identifying the gather and seek as stage one of the summons to satisfaction. And I've just defined it. What I think he's getting at is repent. Repent and wait. Those are the two main commands. Let's see what I mean. Seek the Lord, verse 3. Who's he talking to? All you humble of the land who do his just commands. So there are some, I think it's, it's a little bit difficult. At one level, he's talking to the shameless nation as a whole who are going to be judged, and yet There's some apparently in there who he is absolutely confident are not of the remnant of Baal, but who are truly of the remnant of Yahweh. And if you have ears to hear, I want you to link arms and gather together. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the humble people. He's talking to 
those who actually obey. And I think the implication is, if you don't find yourself now, there, judgment day hasn't come yet, join them. Join them. Seek Yahweh. What do I mean by that? I mean, seek righteousness. Righteousness is right order. That's how I conceive of righteousness. And I I think that's the biblical portrait. It's about right order in God's world. God is righteous insofar as He is passionate to preserve right order in His universe. And there is only right order where He's on the top. And you and I are righteous only insofar as we align with God's passion for right order. That is, we align align with His passion for His own glory. And because none of us align with right order perfectly, we need someone's righteousness who has aligned with right order perfectly to be counted to us. But once we find ourselves established in right order with God through the blood of Christ, the call of our lives is to pursue righteousness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of the mocker, or stands in the way of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree who's planted by streams of the water, who yields forth fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Well, who will stand in the judgment? The righteous. The righteous stand in the judgment. And there is in this Bible a quest. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. There it is. Are you a seeker of right order? Usually what it means is that it manifests itself in care for the marginalized. That's what righteousness often takes the form of. That right order exists where God is over all, and I'm not putting myself in that category, but I'm finding my heart aligned with who God is. Let me give a text that I already quoted. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Here is, the closer you get to God, this is what your life will be characterized by. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, be like that. Love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The closer we get to God, we're going to find ourselves seeking to see right order happening. That is where God's in charge and everything underneath God is at peace with Him and at peace with one another. Not seeking to crush or put down others, but to lift up others and to see them aligned with right order in God's world. Seeking righteousness. Not only seeking righteousness, but seeking humility. So He calls those who are already humble... To nurture more humility. Because we can become proud in our humility. Oh, I'm a prayer. I pray all the time. 
I feel the need every morning to just spend, well, it used to be an hour, and now it's, I mean, I'm so needy, I need to spend two, more, two hours. Where are you at? Let's measure it up. And humility can all of a sudden take an ugly, ugly, non-God-glorifying sense. One of the great things my dad shared, some of you remember my dad, Dave, he came and he's come to two of these. One of the things that he so appreciated about coming and fellowshipping with you brothers is that never once was he asked, or, or did, did one of you come up and say, well, our church, you know, we're, we're pushing 150, and uh, we've got you know, 45 kids in our youth group, where's, where's yours? Nobody has ever come to him in his time here and, and had that. And he said, I've never been at a pastor's conference that wasn't like that. Where people were trying to carry this, it, it's this, um, this sense of need deep in the soul to establish themselves amidst all their brothers. And he, he's just testified, he's just so appreciated being in this room with you guys. Because he just feels like, you're just all together in this quest to know God and love God and try to serve your people. That's where we need to be. We can't be competing with one another. We need to be nurturing humility and to say we're all beggars before the cross. All of us. So needy. This just does away with a haughty spirit. Humility is not defined by self-debasement. Humility is defined by God-exaltation. You can't just destroy yourself. No, humility is about magnifying who is, the one who is worth the praise. Seek it. Seek to make much of God. God is looking for people to preserve through judgment. Salvation through judgment. To preserve them. And those who will be preserved are those who want to make much of Him. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and then notice what it says, perhaps, perhaps, you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This language of perhaps, I think it stresses two things. Number one, mankind's limited knowledge about the future. But then we throw in promises and we gain great confidence. So what else does it stress? It's found all throughout the prophets. I can give you a few texts. Joel 2.14, Amos 5.15. The prophets employ this language to help hearers not presume on divine favor, but to hope in it. We don't want to say, I, I, uh, I deserve grace, but we can confidently hope in it. And what's beautiful in this book is that the, the perhaps in chapter 2, verse 3, turns into certainty in chapter 3. So he's not questioning the future. But he wants, part of what nurtures humility in our soul is to say, I'm fully in God's hands. I'm not deserving anything about my future. I'm trusting. I'm trusting promises that are blood-bought, that are gracious in their origin, and gracious in their fulfillment. Humility. And that will magnify the greatness of God. And God loves to be magnified. Why should I seek the Lord? Why should I find my heart repenting? 
Because Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Well, all these are Philistine cities. Four of them, we know of five. And it only gives four. Gath isn't mentioned. Remember Goliath of Gath. Either, I mean, it's very common in the prophets to only include these four, which may suggest that Gath had already been wiped out or something. But I say, okay, how is it that mentioning the destruction of the Philistines is to be the reason why Israel should seek the Lord today? Judah should seek the Lord. And I think it's one of two options. Seek the Lord today so that you don't receive the same judgment that the Philistines are going to receive tomorrow. Or seek the Lord today because that's the only way you'll benefit from the judgment that God's going to put on the Philistines tomorrow. Now that, there's a four at the beginning of verse four. That because, and I think it's missing in the NIV, but it's there. Yes, it's missing there, but we have it in the ESV. The reason why... God is calling the humble of the land who do His just commands to seek righteousness and humility is because judgment's going to come on the Philistines. That, that sounds a little strange, but I think He's going to unpack it for us in what follows. What follows is an explanation. It's like Zephaniah got to the reason in verse 4, and then he just paused And he says, I'm going to unpack this in two ways. The two ways are found in verse 5 and following, and verse chapter 3, 1 and following. Notice how both of those sections, chapter 2, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 1, both of them start with woe. A woe is not a happy day's anticipation. Whoa. Whatever Fonzie did. This is a woe used all throughout the prophets, a lament woe, a cry of desperation, and you're either crying in light of someone's sin or in light of the judgment that's just been pronounced, and it is tragic, hardcore judgment. If you just turn back to the previous book, Habakkuk chapter 3, sorry, Habakkuk chapter 2, you see a whole series of woes. Chapter 2, verse 6 of Habakkuk. So it's just the previous book. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house, but by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Woe to him! Woe to him! So this is a deep lament of anguish. And the use of it in chapter 2, verse 5 of Zephaniah, and chapter 3, verse 1, sets up two units. And I think both of them Help give the reason why Israel should seek the Lord. 
And not only seek the Lord, but chapter 3, verse 8, is going to begin with the word, therefore. So there, the reason that's given in 2.4 to 3.7, all of this provides the reason, the ground, the basis for why on the one side they should seek the Lord, and because this is true, therefore you should also wait for the Lord. So that's how I'm understanding this middle section. Let's unpack it further. Seek the Lord because the Philistines are going down. That's verse 4. Then he pauses, and he's going to take it in two different directions. I'm going to unpack this judgment in two ways. One, the fate and the negative state of the rebels from the nations, they're going down. And then I'm going to unpack the fate and state of the rebels from Jerusalem and show how they're going down. So our goal here for the rest of this time is to get through verse 15 and look how he depicts the fate or the state and the fate of the rebels from the nations. And because God's going to judge the nations this way, His people need to seek Him. Seek Him. Because only, this is the only chance we have that we may be hidden. See, look at chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden, protected. God is your refuge on the day of judgment. That's what we're talking. Do you want it? Do you want to find refuge in God? It's only going to start with seeking Him. So all of a sudden, we begin to feel how this is a book about reformation. And if people find themselves in darkness, not loving God how they should not following Him the way they should, their prayer life is lousy, the commands of God don't matter. If we find ourselves there, the answer is, we'll start. It's not rocket science. Just start. Or, what did our president say? Rocket surgery? Or, I think it was rocket surgery, yeah. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast. So he started with the Philistines. He's just going to take some time now and unpack. And what we're going to see is that when he deals with the nations, let's put Judah in perspective here. Let me throw up this map. All right. Here's Israel in the center of the world, the ancient world. You've got the Arabian Desert over here. You've got the great Mediterranean Sea up there. And all the Mediterranean powers, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, are up in the north. But it's very difficult to do battle across the desert. So if they want to conquer the other major world power down here in Egypt, they're going to have to go through what's called the land between. All the green is what we know of as the fertile crescent. It's where the water is. So all the ancient peoples lived along the green line. But God put Israel right in the middle because their mission was to be a kingdom of priests, mediating God's presence, displaying God's greatness in the midst of the world. Here's Israel, and what God's going to do is He's going to first address Philistia to the west. Then He's going to tackle Ammon and Moab to the east. Then He's going to mention Cush, 
down here to the south, and then he's going to mention Assyria to the north. So he builds a compass around Judah in order to say, okay, you can't run in any direction. My judgment is going to be on all four corners of you, and you think you're going to get out of it? And then he, in chapter 3, packs the punch and says, oh yes, you too. You're among the nations. You're at the center of my compass, and my judgment's going to fall right there. But right now, he unpacks the state and the fate of these rebels in order to say, this is why you need to seek me, because judgment is serious. So let's look at that. 5.30? Brother Tom? Is that right? Uh, the, who's got a thing here? 5.30 is supper? Anybody? All right. Let's look. To the west, the Philistines. And as we unpack this group, let's just be thinking about the nature of sin and the seriousness of sin. And now he's made the call. Seek the Lord. Seek humility. Seek righteousness. And notice how that contrast is contrasted with the state of these peoples. They are the opposite of humility and the opposite of right order in God's world. Here we go. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast. So the Philistines live along the sea. You nation of the Cherethites. Probably um, probably mentioned that they come from, uh, I'm thinking Crete. Anywhere. I, I, I don't remember in my notes. It's here somewhere. But... One of those islands is where the Philistines came from. They're called the Sea Peoples, and the common term for them. The word of the Lord is against you. So the word of the Lord being spoken through the prophet Zephaniah, that's 1-1, now very directed against people. The powerful word that created the world is now against a people group. That's scary. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. That's how vast God's wrath is. Every bit of sin will be addressed completely. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. First time in the book, we've seen that somehow, when God destroys everything, there's going to be a a purified remnant. Not the remnant of Baal, they're gone. But there's still a remnant. And all of a sudden, I'm the reader and I say, how do I get to be a part of that group? But notice where this remnant of Judah is going to reside. It's not a remnant of Judah living in Jerusalem. No, they've claimed foreign nation territory. What do I see here? I see an image of the people of God now filling the earth, multiplying and subduing it as imagers of God. Fulfilling their purpose. It's like the Garden of Eden now. This is anticipating an age of new creation, I think, after judgment has been addressed. 
It's like there's a new people. The remnant is there that's been preserved from the old age, and now they're part of a new age, and they've got turf, and, and they're living at peace. They're not carrying weapons. They're shepherds managing sheep. It's become a pasture land. Throughout the rest of the prophets, the imagery of pasturing, shepherding, is very common when it's depicting the new creation, the age after the final day of judgment. But what's often present in these other texts is that when he talks about shepherding, there's many shepherds, but there's one ultimate shepherd. Zephaniah doesn't go there. And I think it's because of the darkness of where we're at in the Minor Prophets, but I just want to draw our attention to a couple texts that make it explicit that when we're talking about shepherding, we're talking about the age when the one great shepherd will be reigning over all. So let's just look at a few of these. Number one, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 22. Ezekiel 34, 22. I will rescue my flock, says the Lord. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. So there's some who think they're sheep and they're not his sheep. The sheep and the sheep. So what is he doing? He's, de- he's determining, separating those who sought him who sought humility, who sought righteousness, and those who didn't. Specifically, in this instance, among the Jews. When he separates the sheep from the sheep, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. That's the image of the future. Not only shepherds, but a shepherd. Turn with me um, back to Jeremiah. Now I have to try to remember where it is. Jeremiah, sorry brothers, 34, 37, 36, ah, well, I could look at my notes, it's always something that could help. Well, I wanted to go here. Instead, turn to the book of Micah. Jeremiah 23, that was right. Thank you. That's the one. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Verse 4. I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them. That's you, brothers. This is New Covenant text. 
I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. We'll unpack this a little more clearly. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The age of righteousness is the age of the Messiah's reign. Zephaniah is not mentioning it, but he's expecting that by the time you get here, you've read Jeremiah, you've read Isaiah, you've read Ezekiel, and you're thinking about it that way. But it's almost as if the messianic hope has died. The book of Micah, chapter 5. You're familiar with this, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until time. When she who is in labor is given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Oh, I'd like to go more into that. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. That's what we're talking about. That imagery that is going to ultimately be won by the Messiah. Now we're back in Zephaniah chapter 2. Micah 5, verse 2, down to verse 5, I believe. So we're in verse 7. There is going to be a remnant of the house of Judah that's going to be preserved, a remnant of people, and I want to be a part of that, I think his audience would have said. They're going to be staying in the houses of Ashkelon. Now remember the Canaanite during the... God told Joshua, when they were going into Canaan, you're going to stay in houses that you didn't build. Drink from cisterns that you didn't dig. Eat from vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. Well, now those blessings are going to be realized broader than the land of Canaan. It's going to include what they're doing in the foreign lands. The blessings of God begin to be realized at a more global perspective than perhaps was even anticipated. And they shall lie down at evening. Evening is when you've got to fear thieves, fear robbers, fear the wild predators. But in this age, you can just lay down and rest. You're out in the open field and you don't have to fear. I was camping on Mount Carmel, backpacking with two other friends. Mount Carmel where Elijah fought the prophets of Baal. So I was backpacking open air, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, we were totally freaked out and awakened because a wild boar ran right between our sleeping bags. Whoa! I mean, it was like, do I even want to sleep anymore? I, we were so nervous. Um, none of that. You'll rest at peace. For... The Lord their God will be mindful of them. That's why the peace is going to be there. To have a God mindful of you, not angry with you. And the reader says, I want that. What does it take? Seek the Lord. Seek humility. Nurture a a demeanor, a disposition that says, much of God and less of me, rather than the other way around. A disposition that says, I want God to be the blazing center of my life, not just one of my planets. 
nurture it. For those who nurture it now, the Lord will be their God. He will be mindful of them in the future. What you hope for tomorrow can change who you are today. And He'll restore their fortunes. So that's Philistia on the west. Now you move to Ammon and Moab on the east. Who can remember who the Ammonites and Moabites came from? Lot. So you remember Lot and the pillar of salt and the judgment that was brought in the valley by fire. Keep all that in the back of your mind. So these are Israel's cousins. Remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew. And then Lot, after he lost his wife, his daughter, two daughters, slept with him. Both of them, they got him drunk, they got, he got them pregnant in a drunken state, and one gave birth to Ammon and one gave birth to Moab. And those two individuals became entire people groups. Now keep that in mind as we read this story. The irony of this story. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. The Jordan Valley is the lowest place on the earth's crust. You can't get more close to the center of the earth than in the Jordan Valley next to the Dead Sea. Now what that means is that you can only go up. Jerusalem is high up on a big hill. But even higher yet is the Gilead Plateau. A very high, rocky cliffs, and then a high high tableland that Moab and Ammon lived in. Let me pull up another map. Not the best, but you'll get the feel for it. So you can see the dark shading on the map in the center, moving directly up. This is the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee is right up there. Mediterranean Sea. You see Jerusalem. You can always find Jerusalem because you go to the tip of the Dead Sea and move over 12 miles directly to the west. And that's right where the dot goes. So Jerusalem is right there. All along the shoreline, Moab and Ammon is high, high cliffs. And what we learn is that the people from the north would come down and Jerusalem was a natural stopping place. But Moab and Ammon wasn't a natural stopping place. And so what ends up happening is they begin to take great delight in the destruction of others. And pride begins to rest on their soul so that they're even taunting, taunting. Who are you? You picked the the bad plot of land. What was Abraham thinking? Let's read what it says. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revelings of the Ammonites, for they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live. So this is, this is uh, just been, this is not only a declaration of the Lord, he's just added a punch because he swore an oath. As I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. Now why is that so ironic? 
That's where a lot escaped from. So the escape happens out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are most likely located right around here in the southern part of the Dead Sea. Lot escapes, but now, and, and he escapes and they become the two peoples that grow out of Lot are the Moab and Ammon. But now when it says, you'll become like Sodom and Gomorrah, it's another image of reversal, decreation. You've escaped from judgment. Now you're going back to judgment. Don't go back to Egypt. And all of a sudden, they're getting pulled right back in because of their sin. The mercy of God preserved, and then you spurn the mercy of God, and you run back into sin. You become like those who were judged, and you yourself become the enemy. A land of possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. It's very difficult. I mean, this is perfect. This, this is good shepherding territory. And now it says it's going to become, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, a land of salt pits. This is not good farming territory anymore. It's a waste. Then we hear the mention of the remnant again. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So notice that God's nation stands, and in that context, but, but not everyone stands. Only those who have sought the Lord. And if I can just add, in the day that we live, there is no seeking of the Lord apart from Lord Jesus. It's only those who call upon the name of the Lord who will be saved. God's reign through Jesus, His kingdom, that's what Jesus comes to do, to proclaim the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, he's coming, declaring a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins because judgment day is at hand, he says. And look, there's the guy who's going to bring it. I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Judgment day is coming through him. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Will you be among them or will you be among the judged? And Jesus comes now and says, I and the Father are one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Paul says... Unless you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you cannot be saved. There is no lordship of Yahweh apart from the lordship of Jesus. And therefore there is no salvation for the Jews apart from the good news of Christ. The gospel comes as the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Was the 1948 return to Jerusalem marked by seeking of the Lord in the person of His Son? I don't think so. 
And therefore, I, call, I, I would question whether it's talking about this kind of restoration. There is no seeking of the Lord apart from Jesus. There is no preservation from judgment apart from Him. He has to be the substitute sacrifice, otherwise the fires will fall on the sinner. We'll see more of this shortly. The remnant shall of my survivors shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for what? Pride. Self-reliance. Self-exaltation rather than radical God-dependence. Not a brokenness over sin that looks to God as the only help, the only Savior, the only Sovereign, the only Satisfier. Pride. Because they taunted and boasted against the people of Yahweh of hosts. So what does it say? The Lord will be awesome against them. It's hard for me to even imagine what that means. For He will famish, diminish all the gods of the earth. And to Him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So all of a sudden, right here at the end, talking about Moab and Ammon, there is this global realization that's, that we're being told. It's not just destruction by fire. Somehow there's a global realization that Yahweh is God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah that declares that it'll all happen with respect to Yahweh on the day of the Lord. But Paul in Philippians 2 takes this mention of what God's going to do at the final day, bringing all people around the world to bow their knee before King Yahweh, some of them receiving immediate judgment, some of them preserved from His wrath because Christ took that judgment. And in Philippians chapter 2, he applies that to Jesus as the King over all to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, He is Lord. He is Lord. What Paul is doing with this imagery is not strange if we truly have a hope for the Messiah and see it growing up in, the, in this book. That the reign of God is equated with the reign of the Messiah. That the means by which God will save is through His Messiah. It's the only way He can do it justly. He's already set up the stage. Sacrifice by blood is the only way for atonement. And then there's going to be a great warrior king. And how do the two come together? He brings his decisive defeat against evil and sin through the sacrifice. By standing on our behalf and breaking the prison hold that sin had in our lives. We go south to the Cushites. He passes over them in one verse, but he mentions them. It's strange that he doesn't mention Egypt. But the reason, I think, is because the Ethiopians controlled all of Egypt in the period prior to Zephaniah. 
the dynasties of Egypt were Ethiopian dynasties. Now, if I can, I could throw out some dates, but look with me at how the text is worded. You you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And then verse 13 begins with an and. Suggesting that the Philistines stand on their own, the Moabites and Edomites, uh, Moabites and Ammonites are together, and that the Cushites and the Assyrians are together. That and links the two together. There's actually no verb in verse 12. Lots of Hebrew sentences don't have verbs and they just expect you to put them in. Jason, man. Jason is a man. Jason will be a man. And it all depends on the context to try to assess whether the time of this being is future or present or past. He was a man, but now he's returned to be a boy. Jason, man. Here, all we have is you slain by the sword, slain by my sword. You, O Cushites, slain by my sword. And so the question is, is this a promise like it is for judgment against the Moabites and Ammonites that it will happen? Persia destroyed the Ethiopians after Zephaniah. Or, if you remember the book of Nahum, the entire book is written against the Assyrians. And one of the arguments that Nahum uses against the Assyrians is, you think you're strong? Remember Egypt? They used to be the most powerful. And he specifically references the Ethiopian dynasty, and he says, Thebes, the capital of Egypt, fell. So why do you think you can stand strong? I am prone to think that's what we're looking at. When he says, O Cushites, he's not referring to a judgment that will come, but a judgment that has come. And it provides the argument, just like it does in Nahum, that Assyria too will fall. But he mentions Cush. He cares about Cush. He's a son of Cush. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the Ethiopians, and he feels the seriousness of their sin, and God's sword fell upon them, or it will fall upon them. But he just passes them in one quick statement, and then he moves on to Assyria. And he will stretch out his hand against the north. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Same imagery. And I will stretch out my hand against Judah. So Judah gets the same treatment, the God's strong warrior arm. Judah gets the same strong arm that Assyria did. I'll stretch out my arm against the north and destroy Assyria. I'll make Nineveh a desolation. Here it is, the capital city of Assyria, where everything flourishes, and now it's a wasteland. Nineveh is up there by Assyria. Let's see what we get. Herds shall lie down in her midst, and all kinds of beasts... Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. Ever heard of the cedars of Lebanon? Very well-known strong timbers. 
And apparently all the work that went into building their palaces will be for naught. It's just going to be left for wild beasts and domesticated beasts to just come. This is going to be their barn. No people. Empty. Because God judged sin thoroughly. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, listen to this, I am God and there is no one else. There is only one being in the universe who can say that. Let's take a peek at a few of these texts. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Forty-five. We're going to see it over and over and over again. Isaiah 45. And we're going to begin in verse 5. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Only the one who does that kind of stuff can say, I am the Lord. I am God and there is no other. Verse 18. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Only the one who can do that has the right to say, I am God. And so you get one small people group who have an extended reign in the north. And they begin to build up their hearts, thinking they're better than others. That, I mean, you're getting a sense for, I mean, we're just hearing it over and over again, why this book is so needed in my own life, because it just reminds me, I am nothing. I am nothing apart from mercy. Pride, I am and there is no one else. Verse 15, back in Zephaniah chapter 2. What a desolation she has become. Now look at that verse. Does anything look strange to you? Compare verse 13... The timing, that's what I'm wanting to see. The timing of God's judgment. What's the timing in verse 13? Past, present, or future? In verse 13. In 13, it's future. As if it hasn't happened yet. It's future when we're talking about Moab and Ammon. It's future when we're talking about the Philistines. But then in verse 15, what a desolation she's become, a lair for wild beasts. But notice verse 14, herds will lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. So what's going on in verse 15? What do you think? What a desolation she has become. What's the prophet doing? Not only probably, it's so certain he can talk as if it's already done. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, 
He said, you're not anticipating hell, you sitting in my congregation. I'm telling you, you're living in it now. The fires of hell are already in your heart. And the only thing that can quench them and stop them from growing and growing until they absolutely consume you for eternity is repentance. John chapter 3 says the wrath of God will remain on you if you don't believe. That means the fires of hell, you already smell like smoke. It's as if the judgment has happened, Assyria. Your pride is your ruin. And what's so beautiful is he's going to use the same argument for the remnant to talk about their joy. When we get to chapter 3, verse 14... Some of you aren't going to be here tomorrow morning, so we'll just look at it. Notice what he says. Sing aloud. Chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. As if it's already done. But up in verse 8, he tells them to wait. Because the judgment is still future. But he's so certain that it's coming. It's as if he's wanting the people in the present, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of waiting, find your delight in God now. It's as if it's already accomplished. All of it is yours already. But for those who refuse God, judgment is yours already. Everyone who passes by her, chapter 2, verse 15 again. Everyone who passes by Assyria hisses and shakes his fist. These are either expressions of affirmation. Last verse of the book of Nahum. Everybody's going to hear what you've done. There is no, no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? If you were to equate the Assyrians with a contemporary movement, it would be the Nazi Germany. And the gruesomeness that you know of happened there. The depictions that we have, the Assyrians proud of heart, putting up images, pictures, etching them on their walls of their defeat, of their enemies, even of Lachish, Judah's southern border city, right down here by Philistia. And what did they do? They have pictures of them going after the Jews in Lachish, and then they have pictures of all of their bodies impaled nude on toothpicks. And then pictures of all their human skulls piled up in order to give a warning to all the passers-by. This is what happens when you fail to honor the king, the great king of Assyria. So when the people, when we read in this text, everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist, it's either an affirmation, finally they went down, they were so brutal and so mean and their oppression reached everywhere. Or it's in awe of how massively destructive Yahweh's judgment is against them. 
Remember, He is a God of vengeance. And in that we take hope. If we are in Him, all of a sudden, all that judgment, all that wrath, we're supposed to feel it and recognize all of... I mean, all the darkness in this book is poured out on Jesus on our behalf. He becomes the day of the Lord for us. And in Him, the restoration begins. We're going to move in that direction at the session tonight and see how it comes about. But Jesus bears all the fire of God's anger for you and for me. This is one way to preach this text. Do you feel the weightiness of sin? Do you feel the seriousness and the bigness of God's wrath? Every bit of that was born on the cross for you. Celebrate the gospel today. Good news! Fire doesn't have to reach you because it reached Him for you. Assyria, your pride will result in your ruin. So Israel... Because this is true, because God's wrath is going to hit the north and hit the west and hit the east and hit the south, don't think that you can get away from it. Seek the Lord today. Nurture a heart of humility. God opposes the proud, but what does He do? He gives grace to the humble. Find yourself there, and when you have real repentance, believe me, you will encounter real mercy. Because it's been blood-bought. It's been paid for. This is the gospel. Zephaniah is calling people to repent and move toward God. To put their hope in the only hope they have. There's only one Savior, only one Sovereign, and only one Satisfier in the world, and God is it. Every other God, as it says in verse 11, He will famish all the gods of the earth. Stop going after things that are second-rate. Stop holding bitterness, nurturing racism, sexism, lust, whatever it may be. Don't let it ruin your eternity. Let's pray. Well, the irony, and this is, a, this is a great point to bring out, there's an irony in this text, and that is that Assyria is on her dying breath, and Babylon is rising to power. And it's Babylon that will ultimately destroy Jerusalem, and Babylon's not even mentioned in the book. Babylon, yeah, Matt? Do you mind if I ask a quick question? All right. On that day or in those days, my, my mind starts thinking gospel. 
person in the day of the Lord. And so the seacoast, I, I see that a lot, like in, in Isaiah. So in verse 7, doesn't, isn't that clearly the gospel there? I mean, he says, the seacoast sea shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. The meat shall inherit the earth, eventually, right? And then you get, anytime you see, they shall lie down, there shall be peace. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that because of the gospel? Isn't that ultimately... Isn't that an already not yet? Already happens when we're born again. Not yet. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem. And if I know historicity is important, the, all the historical, which is my weakness. But if I was going to preach the gospel and and ultimately think in terms like what Tom's saying, wouldn't Babylon, Cush, Sodom, Gomorrah, wouldn't that be all the rebels who are rebelling against the gospel? I mean, wouldn't that peace? be a picture of the gospel in seven or am I is that is that how a guy would could preach it today? Not ignoring the historicity. Well actually let yeah let me address this is very these are good questions. And we've got time for this, right? Okay. Got, um, yeah, it's it's ten two, so what supper is it six? Six Okay. It's a little unclear at this point in the book, if, we're just, if all we had was Zephaniah, yeah. when the time frame is going to be here. But we're reading this, I think as it was intended to be read, this side of the cross, and we're saying, in what way, when, when are we supposed to posit the remnant of the house of Judah possessing the seacoast? And the remnant of the people plundering Moab and Ammon. What does that look like? Is that just a Jewish thing in the future? Or is it in some ways happening now? So let me just pause and offer some thoughts. Number one, Babylon. So Babylon's big in Revelation. It's the image of all that is evil. And the word Babylon, even though we often miss it in our translations, it's exactly the same as Babel way back in the Tower of Babel. So it's the Tower of Babylon there, and Babylon the Great is the evil monster in, uh, that God overcomes through His Son in the book of Revelation. And what was the problem back at the Tower of Babel? It was pride. They sought to make a name for themselves, we're told. They built a tower in order to reach the heavens. And then, in a silly way, it says, so God came down to see what they were doing. Because they never, they never made it. Um, that type of pride, though, is evil. That seeks to exalt man's name. And it's that pride that then characterizes evil. Any, any type of sense throughout all of history of people that are self-reliant and not dependent, who are seeking um, to exalt themselves rather than be surrendered to the purposes of God, we could call it, they have babelish pride. And God at different times, just like He had at the flood before the Tower of Babel, intrudes and crushes that pride. We call it sin. To think that I can make it without God. 
Why is anything that's not from faith sin? Romans 14, 23. Anything that is not done from faith is sin. Because that means it's growing out of a context of self-reliance and pride. And therefore, I'm getting the glory, not the Lord. Faith is absolutely necessary because it's the one thing we do that takes the spotlight off of us and puts it all on Him. And at the end of the age, all of evil, all of the evil of these nations, but not just these nations, also the evil that we're going to read about in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 that was bound up in Israel, all of that evil is marked as hostility against God, self-righteousness, self-reliance, and it will all be, it's all bound up together and crushed in the final judgment day. So, that's babelish pride. How do we connect the restoration prophecies for the nations and the restoration prophecies for the Jews? Here it mentions explicitly, verse 7 of chapter 2, the remnant of the house of Judah. Verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them. Now, in chapter 3, we're going to see that there is more than just Jew who is redeemed. Verses 9 and 10 focus on the nations of the world, and I believe on the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Pure speech. Everyone calling upon the name of the Lord. And it's on that context we're going to see a bridge built, because Paul begins to talk about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's why missions is so important. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it's those who call upon the name of the Lord who will be saved in Romans 10. Well, that's exactly what he says, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3 verse 9. That's what we're looking for. And Paul's saying, this is happening. Right now, restoration is happening the kingdom is beginning to expand. Judgment Day has come at one level because the cross event has happened. That means Judgment Day has happened for each one of us in this room. Already realized a greater Judgment Day is coming where Paul says in Romans 2, we will be judged in accordance with our works. Not on the basis of them, but in accordance with them. And I think what he's talking about is that God will come out and he'll look at his garden at this big field of trees. Each one of us are a tree. And he'll look and say, Joe's got fruit. He's alive. Tim, he's got fruit. He's alive. But the fruit doesn't make a person alive. It merely proves that he is alive. And he'll say, justified, justified. In light of the fact that you've already been connected to the root that is Jesus. And it's that connection to the root that allows us, so He's the righteous one, we're connected to Him, and those who are justified, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So the future judgment is merely evidential for those who have already had the judgment poured out on Jesus. It merely proves that He did it for us. And that's why I think you're right that we have to see this in an already but not yet sense. In some ways, the restoration 
of the Jews, the restoration of those who are foreign olive branches grafted into the vine, it's already happening. The gospel has the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now let me work through a few texts. Well, maybe I'll just say them to unpack this a little bit. Um, Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30 and 31, 32, 33, 34. It's all new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 8. Look with me first at verse 7. It says, That day is so great. Which day? The day of the Lord. That day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Jacob is the name for Israel. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Now notice verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke. Who's his? Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian yoke will be broken from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. Who's your neck? I think it's Israel. Israel is the your neck. Your bonds. Israel is, Judah has been enslaved by Babylon. And then it says, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. Uh, I, I use the ESV footnote for sure. No question. Foreigners shall no more serve with him. Babylon is the great king. Nebuchadnezzar is the great king. He brings into imprisonment all those who are around him. And then there's a whole bunch of foreign enemies who are serving with him. And Judah has been in bonds. What we learn is that that bond will be broken. Judah's bond, that's your neck. And then it says, and foreigners who served with Nebuchadnezzar will no longer serve with him. So he was the great king and they were a bunch of vassals surrounding him. Verse 9, but they... Who's the they of verse 9? It can't be the you of verse 8. It's the foreigners, the Gentiles, who once served with Babylon. That is, they once had hearts that were aligned with the evil one. They will no longer serve with the evil one. Now they will serve Yahweh their God and David their king. This is the Gentiles. They're going to serve Yahweh, and David will be their king, King Jesus. The future David, not the original David, because he's long passed by Jeremiah's preaching. And then, and God, it says, I will raise him up for them. Jesus came for us, a bunch of Gentiles. And then verse 10, but as for you, ESV says, then fear not, but it's, it's explicit, there's a pronoun there, you, but as for you, so it's they will serve, but you, O Jacob, don't fear, nor be dismayed, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity, Jacob will return and, quiet, and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, I think Zephaniah is talking about the same thing, 
So there's now the Gentiles who are the foreigners. They're serving the same king, Jesus. But as for you, Jacob, I'm going to save you. Verse 11, I will make a full end of the nations among whom I scattered you. So how does that work? Because the foreigners were among the nations, but all the nations are destroyed. So what about those who are serving Yahweh their God and David their king? They must have gained a new identity. I suggest they're like the wild olive branch that's been grafted into the original tree. And now it's one people of God made up of Jew and Gentile in Jesus. Look at back at chapter 12. Same image. We'll stop here. Verse 14, Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from the land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. So Judah's going to get exiled among the nations and God's going to pluck Judah up from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. Who's the them that's going to receive God's compassion? It's these enemy neighbors. And it shall come to pass, if the enemy neighbors will diligently learn the ways of my people, that's the ways of the Old Testament Yahweh followers, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up into the midst of my people. The once enemy neighbors are going to be built up into the midst of God's people, not a separate group. No, Ephesians chapter 2 says there is one new man. Jesus is representative of all of Israel Many people don't identify themselves with Him, and so they become like the enemy, cast off. But the remnant, think about 12 men surrounding Jesus, like the 12 tribes of Israel. They start a new mission from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as they go out, under the authority of Jesus, the kingdom of God begins to expand, just like the Garden of Eden was supposed to expand. Each person carrying the very presence of God. So the world doesn't have to gather to Israel to go to the temple and meet God's presence. No, the temple goes global through you and me. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles are coming to God. They're encountering Philip and Peter and Paul. Indeed, as we, when we get to the Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10... The only example he gives of global restoration is the Cushites, the Ethiopians. And I think that's why the Ethiopian eunuch is mentioned in the book of Acts. Of all the stories they could have picked, they went to the Ethiopian eunuch to say, look, Zephaniah is being fulfilled already, but not fully. It's not all done. But because the judgment day has already come on Jesus, there are elect all over the world, Jew and Gentile alike, for whom the judgment day has been reckoned. And that means restoration and new creation has already begun. And it's our responsibility to go through and preach the word in this season of the year of the Lord's favor, in anticipation of the day of judgment of God, 
that the elect might find their judgment day as past tense in the person of Christ. And with that then, become the remnant of God, grafted into what God started with the Jews in the person of Jesus, with the twelve apostles, and then the church begins to be built, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, in the person of Jesus. That we're not just looking to something supposed to be thinking only future right now. That Jesus is the King, and He is reigning now, and He is fulfilling new creation right now. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's already begun in the person of Christ. He's the first fruits of the new creation. So that, in that image that I put up, this one, the future has come. After judgment, that's day of the Lord, right there, what comes is new creation. But what the Bible talks about is that that future has already come and begun. It's already intruded into the darkness of this age in the person of Christ. And you and I get to enjoy it already, even as we await in hope. And what Paul says is we have the Spirit. That's the down payment that the full, full um, reward, blessing, is coming. But it's already started. That the restoration, the remnant text that it's talking about, the remnant of Judah... As I'm reading it, the remnant of Judah and the remnant from the nations, it's a, the line is a little bit blurry because of texts like Jeremiah 12, which says, well, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of people who are preserved from among the nations, but they will come into the midst of God's people. And all the nations will be destroyed. Well, that means that those people are not counted among the nations anymore. They're not the enemy anymore. They've gained a new identity by adoption. They're part of the family of God, the one family of God in the person of Christ. And fulfillment is already starting, inaugurated, started, as we await the full-blown consummation. So we'll talk more about this later tonight and tomorrow. But I think your, your language wasn't already, but not yet. Well, and if it's the gospel in seven, then I'm seeing that all of these restoration, that image of what takes place after judgment, is new covenant. And I think we're going to see, especially tonight and tomorrow, we're going to see that the New Testament is going to use Zephaniah in that way. It's going to see this restoration is already beginning, already, 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. And that the judgment, the day of the Lord imagery, darkness, cloud, moon turning to blood, blood on the earth, all of those images that are depictions of the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2 says, at the Pentecost, that's what you're seeing, guys. Fulfillment right here. So these are, these are big issues but they're important issues. And that's why I think, once again, this is a book for the church. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to keep us going. I, I anticipate many of us are growing weary 
uh, but we, and, and we're also getting filled. Um, and we need more space, more capacity to receive because we've still got one more session tonight. And we also want to love one another well, not out of weariness, um, but out of being filled by your spirit. So we ask for that. I pray that you would guide our thinking, help us wrestle with these hard but important ideas. Help us celebrate mercy and hate sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Go with us now as we eat. Thank you for a meal. Replenish us and please bless our fellowship. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.